chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have two verses today, verse 1 and 2. Grab a Bible in front of you if you don't already have one. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is toward the back of the Bible. This is uh, the first of the letters that Paul, the older pastor, wrote to whom he calls his spiritual son, Timothy. And it's important that we talk, think about that today. This is the third message out of a series that we're giving where we're refreshing what does our church, what is our church about? And our church is about sowing the gospel, but particularly about sowing the gospel into circles such as this, you know, into minority immigrant community, uh, Asian American community in particular. And we're talking about something I think that's very important to that today. And how, why is it that we have the gospel and why is there a first generation Korean speaking congregation and this kind of more multi-ethnic, you know, a community that's geared to reach people who are speaking English, not just Korean here. And why do we walk side by side? Why do we walk together? What, why is our ministry set up the way this is? And that's what this series is about. And today's, I think it's a particularly important message. So let's go to the scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Oh, and too long, was it? So let's read it again. <laughs> One more time, right? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for the message. Lord, I'm going to pray about some, I'm going to preach about something today, which may actually even be kind of hard, painful even, for us to wrestle with. But I pray that you would sow a healing grace, a uniting and reconciling grace that will turn us into a a united a family full of shalom because of Jesus and his name. Amen. Three points for you today. I'll talk about number one. I'd like to talk about identity. Identity of what I'm going to entitle the identity of the we versus the me. Roman number number two, I'm going to talk about something called a longing for shalom. And particularly, I think this is strong in the Asian American world, and probably just the non-Western thinking people in our cultures. I'm going to call it a longing for community, communal shalom. That's Roman number number two. And three, I'm going to talk about a new family, a new family that God gives us. Let me start off with number one. When someone asks you who you are, your identity, who are you, how do you answer, huh? What, do you, what, what immediately comes to mind? What's the first thing that jumps to your mind? If you go and someone asks you, it's, a, it's, it's not an easy question, is it? Who are you? What would you say? Huh? What would you say? And what, I'm, what I'd like to bring up is maybe would you say what you do? I mean, that's, that's a pretty big thing of what you do every week for a living. 40, 50, some of you work 60, maybe even 70, 80 hours a week. That's a really big part of your life. It's not an... Un, unreasonable or, uh, and it's not an unreasonable or not sensible thing to answer about, say, what you do for a living, right? Hmm. 
in America, we live in this great country where, do you realize, I don't know if you understand this or maybe you don't realize this, that in this country, you get to actually choose what you do for a living. You get to actually choose how you will shape 40, 50, 60 hours a week, make your money and shape not just your money because you realize that you're, you're, what you do for a living isn't just about money, but it's actually kind of the shape of the meaning of, of your life in a lot of ways, right? But that in many other countries, what you're going to do for a living and what you're going to do with your life, you don't get to choose. Whatever your family did, that's what you do. <laughs> I mean, if you're... If your family and if your people are wandering nomads, what you do is you herd goats. <laughs> if, you, if your family hunts and gathers, that's what you do. I mean, those are particularly, you know, the, some of the, among the poor people around the world. Um, but a lot of times, you know, you don't even have a choice. And in this country, it's really incredible that you even get that choice in the first place. But, you know, that's a tremendous blessing that we have that you go to school, you get all these different options. And then you get to shape your life in a certain way. But with blessing, and this is how the fallen sinful world plays out, you know, the way it works, or maybe another way of putting it, sometimes the way it doesn't work, is you get a blessing and something really great comes with it, but sometimes with something good comes with it. As you get, as your mind gets habituated to something new and something blessed, that you also start to sometimes forget something else that was also good and something important. Now, if you go to certain other uh, societies and certain other cultures and you ask them, who are you? You know how they'll answer? What they'll answer is they will answer about who they're related to. They'll tell you who they are by who they're related to. In America, who are you is often a question of who am I the me? We're very individualistic in America. And the individualism tends to be expressed in the the sheer totality of our choices. I've made all these choices, so I get to shape life in the way that that's that's like kind of it's me. A big question about that is what is my job and what's going to be achieved? And you know, here in America, it's it's kind of funny. Some of the things that you don't tend to think of as achievement oriented, even those things we still think of as like kind of chopping up and improving. So. You know, your job and your career, it's obviously, you know, it's, it's something that's oriented toward achievement, for many of us anyway. You know, you want to go here, you want to get the next promotion, you want to make more money, you want to, you know, get accolades in your, in your field, etc. You know, for many of you, that's maybe how, that's how you may sense. There's achievement levels. But, you know, even in America, the very individualistic way that we think of our identity is something that flows out of the me, even something like marriage and family we tend to think of it as very achievement-oriented. Isn't that strange? I think it's one of the reasons why we wait so long to get married, because we have to marry just the right person, because people will think we married beneath us, and then we didn't achieve as much as we should have within our marriage. Isn't that interesting? And so even things like marriage and family and relationships, we tend to think of it as, as something out of the me of something that we achieve. But in a lot of other cultures... When you ask them who you are, their identity, you know what? They, 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 it always comes out of a deeper we. Who am I? I am related to so-and-so people. And who am I? I am Korean. Or I'm Chinese. You know, and there is, there's a particular pride and a sense of gladness that I am from this people. And that is a deep marker of who I am. You know, it's in the Bible, too. 
There's these places in the Bible and it says so-and-so person is a son of so-and-so. He was begat by so-and-so. And maybe if you grew up in the church and you've even read some of those passages, but there's like whole chapters of lists of guys. This guy, son of this guy, son of this guy, son of this guy. And you read this and you're like, man, that was really boring. Because I think it's boring to us Americans, or at least certainly Western individualistic, because we're interested in the me of what I'm going to like shape with my life. But who am, where I'm from and like all the we, that's not as interesting to us. But in a lot of other societies, when they read those passages in the Bible, they're like, oh, wow, this, this is like fascinating. This is important. This is the we. We now can know who you are because we can see you embedded in a bigger culture, in a community, in a we. But this is what's going on here in America. We have a whole set of people who tend to think about life, the meaning of life and my identity, in the achievements of the me. And then there's a whole nother set of people who really think about who they are. It's always like I'm interconnected with all these other people. They know me. I know them. I love them. I honor them. They love me. They honor me. And when, and then when I'm in the midst of this, it's like, ah. Oh. I know who I am, and I feel a certain happiness. You know, we live here in, in, this, in this city. It's very multiracial, multiethnic. And every now and then, you can kind of feel how some people, there's a difference in this divide. Now, you know, uh, uh, a few months ago, my wife and I, we went on an overnight date to San Francisco. And then we went to a Japanese restaurant. And the Japanese restaurant, the waitress came to us, and she asked us if we were Korean. Right? And it turns out that this Japanese restaurant was owned by Koreans. I, I know, that's weird. But that's, that's the kind of place we live in now. That's really weird when you think about it. Like, because Japanese and Koreans have historically hated each other, but now we have Koreans saying, hey, I, want to, I run a Japanese restaurant. But it, this lady asked us if we're Korean. When we said that, yes, her face lit up. <laughs> and she got this big smile. And guess what? We got particularly good service that day. <laughs> right? <laughs> we got particularly good service to us. Because why? Have you guys ever experienced this? And, you know, this is obviously not just a Korean thing. If you have, have you ever experienced this, is that all of a sudden she felt like she was in a room with people that was connected to her. You, you belong to me and I belong to you. We're part of a deeper we. Like, you're, we're like, you know, we're like a one. So I'm going to give you nicer food. Okay? And, even though she's a total stranger, and she's our waitress, there's this, this sense of this we that welled up in her heart. This is hardly just an Asian thing. Um, you know, one of the missionaries we support, he works, he's Korean-American, but he works with Iranians, Persians, people of Persian descent. And he is here, you know, he's actually currently in America trying to improve his Farsi language skills so that he can be more effective in loving Persians, but so and you know he when he meets Persians and then he asks them you know are, you know are you are you Iranian and they say yes, then he he starts speaking to them in Farsi, and then immediately they he says their face lights up and this love you could there's just a, a happiness wells up within them and then sometimes they invite him to this house and then they embrace him in a special way even though he's not <laughs> Iranian he's Korean. But because he says, I know something about the embeddedness of your we, and I love your we, and I want to join in that and be a part of the we that makes you who you are and meet you there, 
Wow, that's like there's something really powerful in that, isn't there? But something about this, you know, when you, we get the identity of the me's bumping up against the identity of the we's, that doesn't really quite mix. These, these two ways of approaching the world, it's almost like oil and water. And this, this, you get this clash of cultures. And when you come into a circle like this, this is a Korean-American church. And it's not just a Korean-American problem, but let's, let's just talk about Korean-Americans. This is, this is the one I know, and this is what we're, that's running home to us. You know, this passage... This passage says, when you, this is Paul speaking to a younger man. He's like, I'm a pastor. He's teaching a younger man who's going to be a pastor and teaching them what does it mean when you shape, you know, gospel-centric community? What does it mean to be of a Christian community? And, you know, is this just a nice piece of advice? Treat the older guys like fathers, older women like mothers and brothers. Is, is this just a nice piece of sentimental advice? I think we, if you have the kind of the identity story of the me, individualistic, you'll go, oh, that's very nice. And you'll feel like we'll have this sentimental feeling that we're brothers and sisters and I'm supposed to show respect to fathers and mothers. But that's not how Paul thinks at all, right? For Paul, whenever he talks, he never just gives you a piece of wise advice, nor does he just tell you commands. This is the right thing to do. Paul always thinks out of Jesus, what he has done, and how this produces a tremendous new world. How this power of the grace transforms and produces a whole new community. And for Paul, he was saying, when you speak to them as a father, you should have this feeling as a father. That you, you really love them as a father. And you know what this is? A vision is a very powerful vision of a we. And it's missing. And I'm, it's missing in our cultures. And it's missing in this community. And you come into a church like this, and let's just talk about this church for a little bit here. You know, I don't know if you know this, but in the Korean-American world, and I'm sure this is also true in Chinese churches. I, in fact, I know it's true in Chinese churches. When I talk to Chinese pastor friends, they tell, they tell you about this. I'm like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. The problems you're talking about is like just change up some of uh, the language stuff, but it's our problems too. I have a friend working in a Mexican-American community, same thing, right? He's a pastor in the Mexican-American community. But you have this church drawn to reach Koreans. And then their children grow up in this church. And then over the last 30-some-odd years, they realize, you know, we want our children to know God, and they don't speak Korean, so what we should do is start a worship service in English, and then, and then, if they, start, and then they can get Jesus, right? In fact, not only can they get Jesus... They can invite all their friends who speak English, so it, it, it'll be great because it's not just for Korean Americans. It could be for Chinese Americans. It could be for Mexican Americans. Hey, Caucasian Americans can come to our church too because, you know, they, they can get Jesus. But something about this, you know, over the years what we're finding is that one generation, you know, you have these two groups of people. Over there is the story of the we identity. In the first generation, in that room, and in this church, it's literally down the hall. But you come into this room, and there's a lot of people with the story of the me identity. And when those two sets of people bump up against each other, there's a lot of pride and misunderstanding. And they just can't understand, like, the me people feel like the we people are imposing an identity upon them. You, we feel crushed and we resentful. And the we people feel like the me people are just selfish and don't know how to connect with a lot of other people. 
And you know, if we were both honest, right? If we were both honest, I bet you the first generation Korean-speaking people can feel like, yeah, I can see how you would feel like your individuality is getting squashed and your identity is you're, you're getting imposed upon. And, and of course, I think we can see, if we were honest, second-generation immigrants, we're not just talking about Korean immigrants, we could say that when the first-generation people look at us and say we're just too self and our self-dream focus, that there's a selfishness there that doesn't allow us to be in a deeper connection with us, I think we can admit that there's some truth to that. And this is what's what's bumping up in a community such as ours. And and this me identity, we identity, it's it's broken up. And by the way, this isn't just a cultural issue too. This is it's, it's cuts right across families. Why families? I think why the institution of the family is breaking and weakening down. It's just I don't even think this is just ethnic. Even in Caucasian families, there's like a disconnect between one generation to another sometimes across this because the we is like unraveling. Before I go to the second point of my, um, you know, of my message, you know, let me tell you a little bit about a book that I read. Uh, recently, I read a book written by David Brooks. And you guys know who David Brooks is? David Brooks writes a column for the New York Times. So David Brooks is one of the, the he's one of the smart guy stars of our culture. And you know what? It's well-deserving. David Brooks, I think, is brilliant. Right? And David Brooks wrote a book called The Social Animal. And this is one of the most remarkable books I have read in quite some time. Now, David Brooks is not a Christian. Uh, I'm not quite sure where he's, he seems to be a secular Jew. He does believe in God. I'm not sure if he goes to synagogue or... You know, what his theological or religious views are, or if, you know, or if he actually, you know, pursues God in any kind of, like, more, like, regular kind of fashion. But he does respect people. He respects Christians, he's, you know, and, and he respects faith. But in this book, The Social Animal, what he does is he surveys, he's read all the developmental literature, all of this, the biochemical science, and how the biochemical science, there's a biological science, which powers how, our, uh, how we develop and then how we connect each other. So he's read a lot of social science, developmental science, and biological science. And then he's taken all this stuff and he's culled it into a novel. It's remarkable, right? And he wrote, which I think is actually quite a good novel, the, and the life of a, of a man who marries and then about what makes life work. And he, and he tells you about these insights. And I'm just going to give you one, right? This is interesting to you. I hope it's interesting to you. But he says this, over the course of life and all these, all the, the, both the chemical sciences and all the social sciences, all the anthropologists, they all agree on this. Over the course of life, what makes for a more successful, happy, joyful, full life? Is it when you hit all your achievements or if your relationships are more full? Which, which one do you think has, a, has is bigger importance? And you know what he says? All the sciences across the board, the social sciences and the biological sciences, they all say it's actually, you want to be a happier person as you grow older? It's your relationships. How deep are your relationships? How full and connected are you to other people? Actually, when you grow older, you'll see that if you made a million dollars or if you made all these achievements or the, the more good things that you've accumulated throughout your life, those things you'll see will begin to pale 
in comparison to the depths of the connectedness of relationships that you have around you. This is David Brooks. And it's not a Christian, but he's showing this. And I think he's right. He's right and he's wise. I want to place this before you. You know, I'm not saying the, the, the identity of the me is entirely wrong because it is right that, there's an, that we're individuals. We are made individuals before God. But there's, there's a wisdom that's missing here and it shows up in the brokenness of our communities while we don't know how to really love each other across generations and even within our ethnic cultures, right? That's Roman number number one, the we and the me. Number two, I'd like to talk about something that I think is deep and near to the heart, especially of Asian American, of Asian Americans. I was talking about this subject of, of culture and relationships, you know, on, on you know, this, this, uh, this kind, there's this kind of online fellowship that I partake in, you know, where you like, we post to each other. And one of the brothers who were on that fellowship, he was, a, he was an elder at, my, at, the, at, our, at our church that Grace and I went to in, in Philadelphia when we were living out there. He's a Caucasian guy. He's a Caucasian guy in his 50s or so. But for a number of years, he was a missionary in Africa. And when I was talking about how Asians conceive of relationship, of respect and honor, you know, of, of those who are older and younger and so forth, he said, oh, this isn't just an Asian thing. He says, I would say this is a non-Western thing because, you know, I saw this too in, you know, when I was in Africa. He goes, the blind spot is probably in America or at least the West, he would say. I would say this is a non-Western thing. But let's just talk about, I almost entitled this message, the Asian communal longing and the family of God. But let's talk about this. There's something, one of the reasons why I think a church like this, you know, with the first generation Korean speaking, and why this idea of the English speaking ministry, why this has, has been stumbling and not seeming to work very well for the last 25 or 30 years, at least in the Korean American community, they've been trying it, is because the issue is not language, or at least that's not. A, the deeper issue. If you're going to reach people and help them meet God, you have to reach them in the deepest recesses, the bottom parts of their heart. And the bottom part of their heart isn't just language. It's not just a deep difference of language. I would say you have to reach them in their deepest human longing. And sometimes our deepest human longing shifts bit by bit from culture to culture. But particularly in the Asian world, there is a deep longing for what I'm going to call communal shalom. And what do I mean by shalom? The Bible uses this word shalom, and it's typically translated peace in English. But that word peace is it's just, it's, it's just seriously not good enough to understand what shalom, what the Bible means by shalom. If I sit down at the dinner table with my dad, and I don't care about what he cares about, and he doesn't care about what I care about. I don't even like him, and he doesn't even like me. But we're not fighting. <laughs> we don't hate each other. We eat, and we get along, and we're not fighting. In English, we would say we're at peace, but the Bible would say there's no shalom. Because what shalom means is when there's a deeper wholeness. When all that is full and complete and comes together in a new form of health, and fullness and riches. That's shalom. And in the Asian American heart, in community, 
If we don't have something like what Paul is talking about here, when we look at older men and women call and really love them as fathers and mothers, and we look at those younger than us and treat them as like sons and daughters and, and, then, and, and our peers as brothers and sisters, and really not just, that's not just words, it's not just talk, or oh, you're my brother, but really deep down we believe it in our hearts and our love flows forth from that foundation. And we have this. There's something this, this is deeply longed for out of the Asian heart. You know, if you tell your non-Christian friend, let's say you have a, 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 a friend who doesn't believe in Jesus and they're Chinese or they're Vietnamese, and they come into our church and they would hear a presentation of the gospel that is absolutely right on, but let's just, it's, it's what they've heard before. It's something like this. You are, have sinned against God, and there's guilt in you. Jesus is the Son of God. He came. He died on the cross, shed His blood, washed you of your guilt, and now He's going to forgive you, and now you can go to heaven and be with God. They can hear that. That is an absolutely true message. That is so needed, that message to be heard. But how come that people will hear that message and go, eh, I don't even know how that's even... I don't even know if that's true, and I'm not sure if that's very relevant. And they're like, thanks, that's, I'm glad that's good for you. I'm glad that works for you. But they don't, they don't feel moved to meet God when they hear that message. It's the gospel, right? But it's that if you notice that that presentation of the gospel, its appeal is to the individual. The appeal is you as an individual have a problem. That's a problem of sin and your guilt of sinning as an individual. Jesus will give you something that meets you as an individual. And if the individual thinks it's interesting, they're like, okay, that's important. Then we turn to Jesus. And of course, it is very important. There are people who don't feel that it's important. They're wrong. It is tremendously important. But if we're really going to minister, especially like in an Asian American world like this, or the people who feel in the depths of the we, in the depths of their humanity, as a human being, there's a powerful longing that something must be healed in the we. And sin isn't just individual things that we did wrong. Sin is something that's broken in the we. The way we can't make our relationships work across the we, across generations, in this deeper sense, this thing is not working right. You know what? That's sin too. And unless we can proclaim that Jesus has power for that, Jesus has an answer, a resource to take and heal this, I think there's a lot of people who are thinking of the identity of the we. We're not teaching, touching them. We won't offer them Jesus as a powerful Lord and a Redeemer into the depths of who they are. And so this community, such as this, you know, this, is a, this was a Korean-American church, and this ministry is not intended to be just for Korean-Americans. But I want to say something like this. You know, we're going to invite a friend here, maybe Chinese, or maybe he's a, uh, the person is Vietnamese, and they're going to come to this church. And they're going to say, oh, you're telling me that here I, I can meet God. But what I see in your community is, it doesn't seem a whole lot different. I've got problems with my dad and, my, uh, and the elders in my, uh, in my community who are Vietnamese. And you guys seem disconnected, just like us. How does that seem deeper or more of God? What would it be like instead if they came here and we said, you can meet God here, and they, moved, they know that as Asians, that 
that there is this deeper sense, this, this longer sense of connection that, that's, that's, that's typical in the American community. And they come in here and they see that there's something across the generations here that we are, not just because we, it's our duty, but out of our heart wells within us that we call older men and love them as fathers. And the older women, we love them as mothers. And they, and they, they pour back in love to us. Imagine if your Chinese or your Vietnamese or your Mexican-American friend, they came in here and they felt and, felt and experienced that cross-generational love and shalom. You almost wouldn't even have to tell them about Jesus. And they would go, what? That's, this place is weird. What is going on? How come this isn't like some of the other Koreans I've, I'm used to meeting? Or this isn't like the other places I'm, I'm used to being? What's going on in your church? And you're saying, well, it's Jesus. They might ask you, tell me more about Jesus. So, Romanum number three. Number one, the identity of the we and the me that doesn't mix. Romanum number two, this longing for this community shalom, right? But now let me tell you about Jesus. What is it that Jesus can do? Yes, he forgives your individual sins, but what has Jesus done? He's done a lot of things that can take a people and renew us. You know, the Bible talks about the Bible talks about Jesus shed his blood. And it washed us of our sins. But do you realize it washed us of our sins? You know, you you come, I, I grew up in a church such as this, and I grew up in a family such as this. You know, like my family's Korean and they have this like, Korean identity. And then the Koreanness of my dad is bumping up against the Americanness that I've swallowed. And like, you know, we ha- we've ha- we, ha- we had some screaming knockdown fights, right? And there is a longing yet in me to meet my dad and all those of that generation. And it used to be that I had this resentment like, oh, why can't they just kind of like just be more like us? And, and that, you know what's, what we're saying there? There's a sin of a we that's saying, if you just change and make yourself a little bit more enlightened, a little more tolerant, allow a lot more individuality, then it'll be good. But what we're just saying is, you change and then come onto my turf. And then what are they saying to us, of course? What they're saying is, if you could just be a little bit more respectful, a little bit more honorable, a little bit more submissive, they're saying, you change and pick up the goodness on our side, and then, you know what, this is the sin's. And deep down is this conflict of a selfishness, of a pride, in which we have to just have it on our terms and we reject those who don't have it on our terms and we disrespect them and eliminate them and exclude. But let's talk about the blood of Jesus. You know, we exclude people on our ethnicity because of our ethnic blood. We exclude people because they're like, I got a blood in my family. All these other people outside, this is my family. You know the blood of Jesus? This is a crazy idea. What the Bible says is that the blood of God is thicker than all these other bloods. It's thicker than the Koreanness or the Chinese or anything. It's even thicker than your family's blood. That the blood of Jesus, which is washed over you, will place you into a new identity and a new family, a family which is eternal. Your family may die out. Your ethnicity may die out. You know, it's, it's kind of a strange thing to think 
that in one way, the Koreanness of Korea, I hope that doesn't happen because I do love Korea, but that could actually die out. Nations die, cultures die, families die, but Jesus, the blood of God, goes forever. And that blood was shed to pour out and make a new family. A whole new family bound by the blood which goes beyond all ethnic boundaries, beyond even your family boundaries. And when you let Jesus, you come to him, and you let that bond be about you, then maybe his blood can wash you of some of that pride. And you can let go of some of that comfort zone. And you can give people benefit of the doubt. And you can look at people, even when they don't deserve, because they don't know how, they're not, the older people who don't, aren't treating you as fathers, but you'll say, you know what? Jesus, the Father in heaven, sent Jesus to be a father to me, though I didn't deserve it. I will love this way too. And we will sow a new kind of family into this church. You know, as a younger man, and I close my sermon this way, I struggle with my dad in being in a church like this. And I, and I suspect part of the reason why the Lord called me back into, a, into this type of setting is because this is something that he taught me. I'm not saying I'm better. I, I, I learned this the hard way. I learned this through sinning and, and, and needing repentance. How can I ever meet my father, even though I'm not really Korean enough? And I don't feel that I have to be, quite frankly. I don't feel the need that I have to make myself more Korean. But how can I meet him and meet him in that shalom longing? And oddly, in my own shalom longing. It wasn't by wrestling and fighting about our cultural differences. It was that deep down, I need to become a deeper Christian. I need to go deeper with Jesus. Not go deeper into the Koreanness, but deeper with Jesus. And let his blood be the deepest thing that shapes me, not the blood even from my dad or the blood of my Koreanness. Let Jesus shape me so I will begin to treat my father like this. I will treat my elders like this. I'll treat all those who are older than me like this. And then I can offer this to my brothers and then to the younger people in our church, regardless of whether they're Korean or not. So that there'll be a new family of God, the world this shalom longing for. Can you believe that this could happen in this church? You could believe that this could happen because Jesus, it's that powerful. His blood is that powerful. The gospel is that great. God will heal something that's not just my individual sins, but he can actually make whole new nations. It's kind of weird. It's wild to think he can make a better form of Koreanness. Because it does not worry about being Korean, but it's more worried about Jesus. It's more focused on Jesus. Jesus reshaping cultures to produce new families. So this is, this is what our church, we're, we're interested in chasing this. We're interested in believing this, sowing this into us, and having this come out of us so that Christ comes out of us. And that this new family we start becoming this new family and drawing people into this new family, whether they're Korean or not even. And so, as we go to the table today, we're going to drink of this blood that makes us new. We're going to eat of the body that makes us one to a new family. I pray that you would pray on that. You would 
chase that, you would long for that, you'd want to be a part of that. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so broken to part. We're broken inside of us, but we're broken as a people. There may be brothers and sisters here today who have just issues about being Korean. They don't know if they, they, they want to be Korean, but they hate, being, they hate the Koreans. They, there's probably others who, are, who feel that way within their own circles. Chinese brothers, I know, have talked that way. And Lord, there needs to be a, a new power being poured forth in this city, in America even, Lord, of this new shalom. And it only comes from you, Jesus. It only comes from you. Only you, only your blood can humble us so much that we'll take down these other barriers, that we will give up comfort zone and pride and pour forth a serving heart, even to people who don't deserve it. Well, we certainly know we don't deserve it. As we go to the table today and eat the meal of your gospel, would you sow communal shalom into our hearts? Sow shalom into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name.